Well, I'm just going to say it. It's great to have Sean here. Welcome. So if you don't recognize this young man, it's because when he was here years ago, he was a very, very young man. Or maybe you weren't here at the time he was here, and that's fine. But he's in town for a wedding, and we're glad to have you. So welcome. Good to see you. Um, we have a lot going on, and one of the things that Chris mentioned earlier uh, is, is the concert of prayer that's coming up tonight, and I just want to prepare you for that time, okay? Here's the thing. We know very well that unless we are relying upon God in prayer, we are essentially trying to do things on our own, and as a church family, for us to gather together for the express purpose of prayer is critical, uh, if we're going to be pursuing God, depending upon God's power and, and walking uh, in his way in terms of being a light here in this community uh, of Jesus. And so we, we want to make sure that we're depending upon God's resources to accomplish the task he's given us of walking closer together, of reaching farther together, of growing deeper together. We want to make sure that we're doing that, relying on him. So a few things that are going to go on. Number one, if you have kiddos from ages four or under, we've got kiddo care for you. So there's right there in the nursery just bring them on over there secondly if your kiddos are older hey have them come in here again this clayton valley church is the place where kids are not expected to be you know seen and not heard uh, they're going to make sounds that's okay we're praying to god they learn a lot by watching you pray mom and dad they really do they, 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 they gain all kinds of understanding. So maybe bring something, you know, like a coloring thing or if you, you know, they need to be busy with something. Bring those things with you to help them in that. But they're going to learn a lot by seeing God's people pray together. The other thing is this. We are going to attempt to start to pray at 6 and we're going to begin praying. We're going to pray. Uh, so let's, here's what's going to happen. Because we're in a spiritual battle, you are going to be late. 18 things are going to happen to you this afternoon that are going to get in your way. And I want you to know something. Don't worry about it. Just get here. When you walk in those doors, people will be gathered in groups praying. Just walk up to a group and start praying. Some of you are going to go, well, I can't stay for the entire time, so I shouldn't show up. That's okay, too. If you're in a group gathered to pray, you get up and leave. No one's going to be going, wow, that person's so unspiritual. No. That's, that's good. You, you were here for the time you could be here. Uh, and some of you want to be here and you can't be here. Know this, we are. We're going to be praying for you, <laughs> for sure. But, but all that to say, let's make sure that we take advantage of this time. Uh, because, uh, you know, if, if we're not, depending on God in prayer, uh, the question is, what are we doing? You know, wh- who do we think we are? And, and so uh, let's, let's make sure to, to take advantage of that time. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, when you uh, hear the word wilderness... What do you think of? And some of you see that picture and you're like, oh, I long to go there. I want to be there now because I'm, frankly, I'm quite sick and tired of everyone that's around me, you know? But others of you go, are you kidding me? That's terrifying. Why would I want to go there? There is nothing there. And by the way, these are our pictures of the Sinai wilderness, uh, which would be the, the place that God's people Israel traveled through uh, from Egypt on their way to the promised land. And this is what it was like. It's still like that today. Uh, You can go see it for yourself. Uh, There's not a lot of plush greenery around, as you can see. There's not a lot of innate provisions there. But the question is, what do you think of when you think of the wilderness? It automatically has the sense of foreboding, doesn't it? It kind of has a sense of, of, of being dangerous, it kind of has a, a sense of, of why would anybody go there and stay there on purpose? And yet that's what we find uh, in our passage today in Luke chapter 4. We find that Jesus is actually being led to the wilderness. He's being led there uh, deliberately by God. And so we go to Luke chapter 4. You'll find that on page 47 in the Bibles there on the, on the chair rack in front of you. And so, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. 
And he ate nothing during those days. And when, he had, when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that in this time, you would instruct us, you would teach us, that we would grow in our understanding of you, that we would grow to understand even the the battle of of temptation that we would also grow to see what Jesus has accomplished and 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 we would ask Lord that you would uh, take us where we're at right now and even grace us to 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 trust you even more uh, through the time that we we spend together uh, now and so we look to you to teach us and guide us and we thank you in Jesus name amen go ahead and take your seats so as we, uh, as we look at this passage today, um, we're, we're, we're going to be just kind of asking a very simple question. Why the wilderness? Why? It's very fascinating that this would happen at this point in time in this narrative. And, and, uh, and, and the thing is, a part of what we're seeing here with the wilderness is the fact that God does this. And, and he, he does it uh, with a purpose, and that's the first thing we're going to see. God leads into the wilderness with purpose. That's always the case. So uh, if we think about, uh, as we mentioned before, the, the wilderness area, we think of the exodus. We think of God's people being taken through the wilderness. And, and, and when we look at that, we, we understand that um, you know, it would have taken them about maybe three to four weeks to walk directly from Egypt to the promised land. Three to four weeks. And yet God has them in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? And, and from that we learn that, that God's purpose in that was, was not transportation. It was education. God, God was teaching them something. And, and we find here that, that we have much to learn as well as Jesus is himself led into the wilderness. Notice he's full of the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting is earlier we saw the Spirit if you were with us last week, the Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And now he's full of the Spirit. Where he's described it in that way here. And, and you're kind of going, okay, but isn't the Holy Spirit Jesus' Spirit? Yeah. Yeah, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> That's just one of those, when you think about the, you know, God, Jesus, fully man, fully God. How does that work? I don't know. It's mysterious. Uh, but the Bible doesn't shy away from mysterious things. It just tells us things as they are. And in that moment, we understand, you know, let's face it, we didn't invent this thing. <laughs> Who would have come up with it? It would have been simple to understand for us, right? But it's not. It's beyond us. And, uh, and, and so Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He, he returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. That, that's an ongoing way. The Spirit of God is leading him in the wilderness, and, and then you're going, well, what is the purpose of that? I mean, if anything, you would think, you know, with what just happened at the baptism in this moment, the, you know, the voice from heaven speaks. That voice that, that, that sounded out at, at the burning bush for Moses. And then on Sinai with Moses. And now it's Jesus' baptism and God speaks from heaven. You are my beloved son. That would have been the moment then to go, okay, hey, everybody, you're here. Let's catapult now into this prominent ministry but instead 
No, it's the opposite. It's the Spirit leads Jesus alone off into the wilderness. And, and, and we, we need to really make sure we're grasping what, what the Lord is teaching us here because there's a reason this is being said. And we find it in verse 42. Notice the purpose. For 40 days, so the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So he's there to undergo temptation. Huh. And then we get another detail in the next portion of verse 2. Look at what it says. He ate nothing during those days. For 40 days, he ate nothing. And when they had ended, he became hungry. We need to understand here that, really, Luke is bringing forward for us that, that Jesus, the Son of God, is in fact also really human. He's uh, he, he's 100% God and 100% man, but he, he is fully human. He experienced hunger. And a lot of times, I think for us, we, we struggle with that. We don't really grasp that because I think deep down what we think of the incarnation and it's almost like we're like, yeah, he, he was human, that's okay. But he was God. And that's true. But, but then when we think, but, but, you know, as God, he certainly didn't undergo temptation and trial in the same way that we do. And, and so, um, you know, there's an ancient heresy, docetism, that would declare Christ only seemed to be a man. And sometimes we get dangerously close to that thinking if we're not clear about this. No, Jesus is a man. He is the God-man. But I, th- I think Hebrews chapter 2 says it really well when it says, therefore he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, notice, in every respect. In every respect. Some other translations put it in all things. Other translations say in all respects. Some other translations say in every way. That, that's, that's kind of the idea. Those all capture what this term is saying. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect for a purpose. What? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He's our high priest. He's going before God on our behalf. He's representing us before God. And he does so fully as an actual human being. But it goes on, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a, a propitiation is a gift that appeases wrath. And the idea is Jesus himself is the sacrifice that appeases the wrath that we all deserve. He did that by living in our place and living the life faithfully that you and I could never live. He, he accomplished that for us out of love. But there's also another purpose. Notice at the end of verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to give help to those who are being tempted. Huh. How was your week? Did you feel tempted at all this past week? If you're a believer in Jesus, you know you have. How'd it go? Was it a week of standing firm in victory? Was there, was there defeat? Was it sort of like you're looking back on I really don't know what happened, to be honest with you. How often is it, you know, I was kind of halfway through the temptation before I even realized, oh, I'm being tempted. Wait a minute. This passage is, is really bringing out this depiction of Jesus as a man who's hungry, who's tempted. And in doing so, he's representing us for a reason. And so God has a purpose for him in that. There is a purpose that he would become and live out uh, the, this, this life before God to take our place and to be that propitiation that appeases God's wrath and to be the one who dies in our place. But also to be the one that helps 
when we suffer temptation. And we'll get more into that a little bit later. But God has a purpose for this and we don't want to miss out on the purpose. There's something very, very beautiful and very, very deep going on in terms of what Jesus is, is accomplishing as, as, as the one who is God, as the one who is man, fully. And so, uh, why the wilderness? Well, God leads into the wilderness for a purpose. Uh, but secondly, we also find the devil attempts to hijack God's purpose. That's what, that's what always happens. That's what the devil does. God has a purpose in something, and the devil comes along and goes, Hey, you know what? I want to take that. I want to twist that. I want to tweak it. And I want to use it for my own purposes. So what, what happens is he, he tempts Jesus. And it's fascinating to see the very first words that come out of the devil's mouth in verse 3. If you are the Son of God. Huh. What's going on there? I mean, why open with that? Well, there's a reason. Again, if you'll recall from last week, if you were with us, what did the voice of God say from, from heaven? You are my beloved son. So what's the first thing the devil does? He takes what God says and calls it into question. And, and, and that's always been his pattern. He's always done that. If we go back to Genesis... And we find that place where Adam and Eve were tempted. What, is, what does the devil do there? He takes God's words. He actually, it's a quote of what God says. When God says, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And the devil takes those words and says, you will surely not die. And the way the Hebrew actually unfolds in that section, it's a quote of God's words with this little Hebrew particle on the front. It's a low. It'd be the equivalent to us of an anti-sign. So take this thing. Not. So it's God's words and a denial of those words. Or a calling into question of God's words. That is his pattern. And so here he's holding to the pattern. If you are the son of God. And then he gives a challenge. Tell this stone to become bread. Why is he going after that? We've just been told. Jesus is hungry. He's hungry. Folks, I've been thinking about this this week. I am the biggest wimp in the world. I get hangry when I'm like, you know, I go maybe from morning through till four o'clock, having a time to eat, that happens. And I'm just like, Jesus it's gone 40 days. And let's remember, he is human. Yes, he is God, but he is fully human also. And so the enemy knows his weakness. He knows right where to hit him, right where to get him. And that's what he goes after. And actually, it would be kind of a cool thing to see, by the way, wouldn't it? I mean, you're, hey, look, there's a rock. It's very particular. So he's saying, tell this rock. He's pointing to a specific rock he's looking at. You saw the pictures from before. There are plenty of rocks to pick from. There's one. Make it bread. Boom. I'm thinking to myself, boy, you know what? If I was, if I was Jesus there, I'd be going, you know what? A nice thing, a hot sourdough right now. Right out of the oven. Sounds good. I'd probably turn to the rock next to it and go, and your butter, you know, Bam right? That would be me. But thankfully, Jesus is not me. No, what does he do? He responds and answers him, verse 4, it is written. Literally, the Greek here would say, it stands written. So there's a, there's a tense in Greek. It's called the perfect. It has the idea of something that happened in the past that has lingering results to now. The closest thing we would have in English, that would be the idea of uh, it stands written. If, if someone's released from jail, right? They, they, they were released in the past. They remain released from jail now. That's the idea. So Jesus is saying, it was written, it remains written, and the effects of that being written flow into this present time and on into the future. Man shall not live on bread alone. 
Now, other gospel accounts complete the phrase that's being quoted there from Deuteronomy 8 to say, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we think of that and we go, wow, what, what an amazing statement. And, and we'll get more into that a little later. But, but you see what the devil's doing here. He, he's, he's attacking him where, where he's weak. He's going after him. And, and, uh, and, we, and we find that, that there, is, there is very much a way in which the devil um, attempts to, to, to go after us in those moments of weakness. And we do find instruction here, not only on the devil's schemes, uh, but, but also on how we're to respond to them. And I don't want to spend all the time on that, but, but I do think that there, this is instructive. You know, we do have Jesus showing us, in many ways, how to deal with, with temptation. Um, and so I encourage you to go ahead and turn over, if you would, also to Ephesians 6, because we, we actually get a, a, a closer snapshot of how this works in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, there we're, we're, we find that uh, we're, we're, we're told about this, this battle that we're in. And, and as you're turning there, let's just think about what the devil has done here in, in Luke. First of all, he's, he's attacking what God says, right? That's, that's, that's one thing he does. So um, God said this. Let's call that into question. Let's, let's try to blur that. Let's distort that a little bit. And usually, by the way, when, when the devil uh, does that kind of tweaking on what God says, he does it with a sense that God is holding out on you, right? So, so here in the wilderness with Jesus, it's, man, why are you so hungry? If you're the son of God, I mean, you, you should get what you need, what you want when you need it. I mean, just, hey, make some bread for yourself. So often there's a sense that God's holding out on you. Why is God putting you through this? Um, and then the other thing the devil will do, not only does he attack what God says, he'll distro- distort the truth, uh, sometimes with a partial truth. He's really good at that. Uh, in the garden, for example, he told Adam and Eve, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you won't die, that's a lie. But you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they did grow in an understanding of good and evil. That's true. Of course, they were already burying God's image. So they they were very much being deceived also in that way. They already were like God. Um... And then, and then thirdly, what, what the devil will do, not only does he attack what God says, and not only will he distort the truth of the partial truth, thirdly, he's going to present a logic of relief, if that makes sense. Whatever your trial is, whatever you're undergoing, if you do this, what I'm tempting you to do, you'll experience relief from whatever that pressing issue is. You're going to feel better. It's going be, to be better for you. And, uh, and certainly in the case, of, you know, with Jesus here, what was the pressing need? And his, well, it was hunger. He was legitimately very hungry. Now, we don't have time today to go through the entire um, Ephesians 6 section, but and I would encourage you to read this this week. But, but uh, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, you know, Paul is exhorting the Ephesians, hey, look, this is what it means to be the church. He's describing the church. He's describing this beautiful new thing that God has brought about. Uh, whereas there's no uh, longer people separated by ethnicity. There's no longer a people separated by, by you know, their, their, their status. No, it's all one people that God's brought together because of what Jesus did. The dividing wall has been broken down. And the church is described as one new man, one entity. And then the church has different gifts. And we're to use our different gifts in a way to, to build up the body together. And, and then he goes on to describe different relationships within the church. And then he describes family relationships in the beginning of chapter 6. And he describes work relationships. And then he goes on in, chapter, in verse 10 to say, Finally, after all this, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There we go. The devil's scheming. 
We're told in other places in scripture that he's prowling about, about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I heard a story not long ago, someone who was on safari, they were in Africa. This person does kind of medical missions and other things. They were there with their daughter. And uh, they, they got, had the opportunity to do a night safari. Night safari. You get to see more on a night safari is the idea. And so their, their guide who'd been taking out people, you know, they'd been, he'd been a guide for probably you know, a good 15 years, very experienced. And they're out in the night and they're looking around and all of a sudden, from what she said, is they're in this, this kind of open transport vehicle, four, four-wheel drive kind of thing. There's maybe like, you know, four other people with them. And all of a sudden he goes, stop. He stops the car and he goes, run for that building now. And they're like, Okay, sure, you know, and they, they all, you know, they're, they're listening to him, and they run. They don't know why. They get into the shelter, he closes the door, and then in about like a minute and a half, just outside the building, they hear this, roar, like a roar. They couldn't believe it. They got to see, well, they got to hear a lion <laughs> up close. And the look in his eyes from what she said was just one of, panic, really. Like, this is not supposed to happen. (laughs) So somehow, in all the years he'd done this, he had never seen this before. And they had to wait it out. And they did. They waited a long time. And then eventually ran to the car and ran out, you know, and drove away. And they were fine. But when you see an experienced guide like that, look that afraid, you're like, this is not good. Here's the thing. That environment, if you're aware of it, what does it cause you to do? It causes you to be alert. Caused you to be ready. Are you going to go to a night safari? Just kind of like, hey, you know, and the, and the same way you would like maybe go to the movies or something or go out to dinner with a friend? I mean, you do that, you're going to be the dinner, my friend. All right? That's not, that's not a good idea. But that, that is the picture of our, that's normal life, folks. For us, we're in a spiritual war. We don't live in peacetime. I get very, very concerned for, I'm going to talk about the American church as a whole. Because our culture is so, oh, I don't know, addicted, really, to comfort. You know, that's like, it's, you would think that's like the first commandment for us. Thou shalt be comfortable at all costs. And, and, then, and then we're also, we tend to be very myopic. We're all into us, me, um, we tend to pre- we even think like what's happening in the United States of America is what's happening in the world. And it's not. We have so much to be thankful for. We have a heritage to be thankful for. We have Judeo-Christian uh, ethics and principles that our country's, country's been founded on. And yet, we also want to recognize this is not a theocracy. Nor should it be. By the way, if it ever does become one, that's not good news for the church. It really isn't for God's people. History has proven that to us time and time again. So we have reasons to be thankful and a heritage to be, uh, you know, uh, grateful for and, and a freedom to follow God. And yet, we don't understand we're in a battlefield. That's why we have brothers and sisters from around the world who will say things like this, as one woman from China said, oh, we're praying for you in America. We're praying for you. Yeah, we're persecuted. Yeah, we have to, we're part of an underground church. Yes, if our government finds out that we're meeting and gathering, we could be imprisoned, tortured, or killed. But we're praying for you. Because we know we're in a spiritual battle. So Ephesians 6 is telling us there are schemes. And and then verse 12, notice he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against, why, why do we act like it is all the time? It's not. What is it against? Against rulers, prince powers, against world forces against, of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a host of demonic entities that operate in the spiritual realm, and that's the real enemy. And so we need to understand that. And then notice what we're told to do in verses 13 and following. Take up, not part of the armor of God, but the full armor of God. 
Put it on. That's the idea of taking up. Why? So that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything, notice, to stand firm. Now that word, stand firm, that is the ongoing imperative. That's the ongoing command throughout this whole thing on spiritual warfare. And that's instructive for us. You'll notice that spiritual warfare, the main call for Christians in that is to stand firm. Because everything's going to come against you to get you to move, to get you to shift, to get you to compromise. Maybe it's just a little bit. Think of the temptation with Jesus. Hey, there's no one else there. He's in the wilderness. He's alone. Who's going to know if he looks at a rock and says, hey, you, bread, foof. But we're to take up the full armor of God and do everything to stand firm. And then that verb comes up over again. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. How do you do it? Well, first thing, you've got to gird your loins with the truth. That's, that's the idea of uh, when, when they would um, get involved in combat, they were typically, you know, if someone was, was to do that or, or to need to run quickly, they would be wearing robes. And so they would take the robes and they would sash them up so their feet and legs had freedom to move. So that's the idea of girding up. Um putting on the breastplate of righteousness, that would, that would be a part of the centurion's armor in Rome and it would be a metal plate. It would cover the vital organs. So you've got this truth, the, knowing the truth of God, knowing the scriptures, knowing the gospel, that's the way to make yourself agile. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness, that's Jesus' righteousness. So his righteousness in your place. Receiving that as, as a gift. He covers your vitals. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So it's like the, the, the thing you wear on your, on your feet, they had different types of foot covering, sandals for different things. These are the, I don't know what you'd call it, the Nike Air version of sandals. I'm not sure. But the idea would be it makes you faster. You can go. And notice, it's with the gospel. The good news about Jesus. So you're able to, 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 to again, you're agile. You're able to run you're prepared. And then, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, notice, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Archers were very desirable in the first century because you could assault your enemy from a distance. You didn't have to get close. And some of the longbow, they would be able to fire and it'd be like a mile and they'd be accurate. They're hitting people. So they, they, these were very, very capable weapons. So now the idea is you're, you're being barraged by these fiery arrows. Of course, you light them on fire because if they hit something and they can ignite it, you're doing more damage that way. And so this, there's this shield. And, and oftentimes I think we think of the shield as being, you know, kind of like out of, uh, you know, the Knights of the Round Table era. You know, it's like a shield. It's got a cross on it. You're standing you know, a lot of times when you have the picture of the armor of God and, and kids, you know, kind of curricula, that, that's what they'll use. That's not what this is. So there's a very specific word for the shield that's being used there, and it really is much more like a door. It's large. And what, what the Romans would do is they would take those shields, and, and as the, the, the phalanx was together, they would, they would crouch with the shield like this, and then the next soldier would be like this, and they would join to that shield and like so and you'd have a wall and you can see how at that point all the flaming darts or all the flaming arrows are extinguished but it's together and by the way isn't that a good picture of what we're called to do with the shield of faith remember what's Ephesians about the church bodybuilding one anothering and so this picture of the shield is, is, is very much that it's us together, trusting God. And then there's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive portion of the armor is, is the Word of God. And you'll notice it's the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit owns it. The Spirit's the one who composed it. 
The Spirit is the one who enables us to use it. The picture is very much like we are holding on to the sword and the Holy Spirit's arms and hands are over ours and he is helping us, instructing us, enabling us to, in fact, use his sword in a way that produces his results. So we find that there's that description. And, and, and so now we look back. What is, go back to Luke now. What is Jesus doing? It stands written. It stands written. It stands written. He is using the sword. It's probably where Paul even got the idea. Jesus is using the sword as he is full of the Spirit. And so it is written, it stands written, it remains written with full force, with full clarity, with full power. And that's how God's word meets the devil's schemes head on. Because think about it, when the devil comes along and, and attacks what God says, the word comes back and goes, no, this is actually what God says. When the devil attacks with a partial truth or a distortion, what does the word do? The word comes back with absolute, full, clear truth. When, when, when the devil brings forth that logic of, of relief in some ways, the word has a way of saying, no, that relief you're seeking, you're not going to find it there. That's a lie. Instead, whatever you're facing, whatever relief you want, the word calls out and says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And so why the wilderness? Well, God has you there for a reason. He's teaching you these very things. And we need to learn how to to respond to temptation in this way. Because the reality is, we're going to have temptation. That's the thing. When it comes to temptation, really, we're, we're, we see here very clearly, number one, we've got to expect temptation, right? We've got to expect it. It's going to happen. Shouldn't be a surprise. And then the second thing we need to be able to do is we need to to be able to, to see how it works. You know, expect it. We've got to also recognize it, recognize how it works, recognize the, the ways that it operates in our lives. I think part of what we're seeing here is when we're weak. Recognize when you're weak. Um, you know what? I'll give you an example from my life. One thing I always do on a Monday, I try to hang out with Janet as much as possible. By the way, Janet's my wife, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> so it's... My wife, Janet, yes. I do. You know why? Mondays can be hard. Yeah. Um, you know, Sundays are, are full. Um, there are many times after preaching, I will walk down and just go, oh, Lord, these poor people. <laughs> you know? <laughs> help them. Help me, right? Uh, there are other times where it's just there's an exhaustion factor. And I'm not saying this to go, see, look at me. I'm, this is all of us, isn't it? Do we not all face discouragement at times? Do we not all have times of exhaustion? Do we not all have times where we know when we're weak? So we need to be prepared to place ourselves in areas whereby we're able to, to not, you know, find ourselves spinning out alone. God leads in the wilderness. The devil attempts to hijack God's purpose. But lastly, and thankfully, we find this. Jesus alone fulfills God's purpose. Certainly, it's amazing to see how Jesus fights off the devil's temptations. And yes, we've learned a lot from that already. But there is something very significant happening here. And I think it would be the main reason Luke even places this account in this portion of his gospel because all of Jesus' answers are coming from a certain place. And you know where that is? It's very interesting and it says a lot. 
They come from the book of Deuteronomy. Huh. Why is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy? He could quote a lot of things. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Well, Deuteronomy is actually, the, the word there means second law. It's God's law that he's bringing forward. And, and so what he's doing is he is, he's quoting back to the devil even the law that God gave man to live by. And so, in essence, Jesus' response are, 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 you know, you, devil, are suggesting that, you know, I'm going to feed my body, and that's going to take precedence over obeying God. But God has told us, in his law, we don't live by bread alone. What's Jesus doing? He's fulfilling the law. Yeah, devil, you offer me universal power at the price of worshiping you. But God has told men that they are not to worship any but him. And so I'm not going to worship you. And he quotes that from where? The law. Why? Because Jesus is fulfilling the law. Yeah, devil, you, you, you think I should test God's promises. You think I should make God prove to me that he is in fact here with me. But I'm not going to. Because he has told us that we are not to test him. Where did he tell us that? In his law. Jesus is fulfilling the law. Why is that significant? Well, because he's really taking us all the way back to Adam, all the way to the Garden of Eden. And that's significant here because what do we have just before this section? A genealogy. A genealogy that traced Jesus back to Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. <laughs> and Jesus is fulfilling what the first Adam could never do. He's overcoming Satan by his unwavering, wholehearted, full obedience to God's law. Philippians 2 will go on to say that he's going to pursue this fulfilling of God's law all the way to death, even death on a cross. It's very interesting, and one, one commentator noted this. Milton, who is the guy that composed Paradise Lost, that, that very vivid work of literature, uh, when he uh, wrote Paradise Regained, the subject of that writing is, in fact, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Isn't that Interesting. So Jesus is going back and fulfilling what Adam could never do. He's not only doing that, he's also going back and fulfilling what the people of Israel failed to do, note this, in the wilderness. How many years were the people in the wilderness? Forty. How many days is Jesus in the wilderness? Forty. There's a reason. And we find each temptation is something that they face. So, did the Israelites face hunger in the wilderness? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, think of Exodus 16. The whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, but you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, I can think to Moses, like, they're, they're grumbling, they're complaining. They have definitely redefined in their minds what happened in the past. Uh, they were in slavery in Egypt. Remember that? They were told to make bricks, and they were told they had to get more straw, but they were not given the straw to make the bricks, but they still had to up the quota of bricks. It was brutal. And in their brains, it's been converted back into, oh, yeah, we had bread and meat, and we had it good. And you brought us out here to kill us, Moses. 
And so Jesus says, it stands written, man shall not live by bread alone. But every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, There's a place also that we find in Deuteronomy 8 where Moses actually outlines for God's people what he was doing in the wilderness, what God was doing in the wilderness with them. And he specifically says that God allowed Israel to hunger so that he might feed them with manna and teach them to trust in him that he'll provide for them or he'll provide for them. That's why God did that. In other words, there's a purpose for the wilderness. And by the way, you need to understand that as well. And so do I. We need to understand that when we find ourselves in the wilderness, if you're here and you've received Christ by faith and you've trusted in him, understand your time in the wilderness is not just random. God has a purpose for you in the wilderness. He is teaching you that he will provide for you. He's teaching you that you can trust him. And he's taking you someplace you would never want to go. You would never choose this. But he's bringing you through this time for the purpose of showing you who he is. Maybe you're here today and you've never come to trust in Jesus. The call to you is to to look up and to see who's made you. And and whatever the things are that you feel have separated you from him, whether it's uh, your sin, whether it's your past, whether it's where you're from, that has nothing to do with it. Jesus does not say to you, hey, clean up your life and then come to me. He says, trust me, believe. And he gives forgiveness. And he takes your sins and buries them in the depths of the ocean. And he doesn't do that because he's just overlooking sin. No, he lived that perfect life as he's doing here in Luke 4 in your place. And he's dying. He's died that death that you deserve in your place. And now, when you come to him by faith, you receive from him a righteousness that is not yours. It's a gift. We also see in the, in the wilderness this same thing the devil did here when he says, hey, worship me. Worship me and I'll give you everything you want. What happened with, with, with the Israelites? Well, they worshiped the golden calf. They caved to that temptation. But Jesus stands firm and says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And we find the same thing with the temptation that they faced in asking the question, is God really with us or not? In Exodus 17, uh, they were at a place called Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? He'd been faithfully leading them the entire time. He'd been feeding them manna from heaven. The pillar of cloud by day and, and then the pillar of light by night. He was there. He, he, the, the Red Sea had been parted Egypt, the superpower of that day, had been defeated. They'd been brought out. He had demonstrated his faithfulness over and over and over again. And yet, here they are. I'm not getting what I want right now. Is God here or not? And Jesus would not test God. He would not acquiesce to that temptation. So Jesus did what Adam could not do in fulfilling the law. Jesus did what the people of God, Israel, could not do in fulfilling the law. And so what we need to see is Jesus himself is also our hope because Jesus alone fulfills God's purpose. And so for us, that's where we have to rest our hope as well. Are you discouraged right now? Brother or sister, are are you in the middle of the wilderness? You're feeling beaten down. You're feeling discouraged, weak. You're wondering why? Why does God have me here? 
we find in this passage that Jesus is the one who accomplishes God's purposes. And so your hope is not you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and going, all right, now I'm going to go get him. It's, oh, praise God, Jesus already went and got him. Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly. And so now my hope is in him. You know, we find ourselves hungry and we grumble. We face adversity, we, got, we doubt God's presence. We, we encounter uncertainty, fear, or disappointment, and we easily run to the idols of the heart. And that is recognized here in this passage. Just like Adam, just like the people of Israel, that's us. But God is teaching us through this. He wants us to see that. And the the reality is this, as one writer put it, you will never get to the place of knowing that God is all you need unless you go through the place of knowing that God is all you have. So, as we now come to a time of the Lord's table, let's have these thoughts on our minds. And in, in, in uh, celebrating the Lord's table today, what we're going to do is um, you'll come forward and we'll have a, a couple of deacons here at the table um, to, um, to open up the elements. But just go ahead and come forward, take a bread and take a cup. You'll find something in the bulletin there about the Lord's table. There's certain prayers that you can uh, use and just depending on where you're at right now with God, um, we, would, we would just encourage you to read those things. But... Um, Go ahead, let's, let's come forward now and, and receive the elements and we'll partake together.